Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 37, Leviticus chapter 25. This is one of these uh, tough but necessary lessons tonight. There's going to be a lot of detail. Um, but that's because its principles have such a huge role in the life of Messiah and the New Testament in general. And if there's a single word that defines what we're about to read and examine, it's Jubilee. Okay. This is the place in the Torah where we receive instruction on that somewhat mysterious, and I think very misunderstood, year of Jubilee that most of us have heard about, and usually don't quite understand what its purpose is. Yet, we have to know that while Jubilee is the formal name for a special one-year period of time that comes in a 50-year rotation, from the... Torah standpoint, it's really not a year so much of celebration and festivity and plenty like the name would imply. In fact, it's somewhat somber. For some folks, it's a most welcomed time. For others, it was a severe interruption in their lives that carries with it not just a little bit of discomfort and inconvenience, but some loss of personal prosperity. As well. Now, this 25th chapter of Leviticus contains much civil law regarding property, particularly when that property is either land or slaves. And this is important for us to understand for a couple of reasons. First, it's important that we can understand better the backdrop of the times. And second, because it contains principles and patterns that not only gives us direction on how we should think and behave as concerns property, but also on certain functions and purposes of the Messiah. Now, this is a rather long chapter. It gets pretty detailed in its legal definitions. So what I prefer to do is to read it all in order that we tie it all together, and then we're going to reread it in sections as we discuss it more thoroughly. So... Open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 25. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 139. Adonai spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai and he said, Tell the people of Israel, when you enter the land I'm giving you, the land itself is to observe a Shabbat rest for Adonai. Six years you will sow your seed, six years you'll prune your grapevines and gather their produce, but in the seventh year it's to be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land, a Sabbath for Adonai. You will neither sow your field nor prune your grapevines. You're not to harvest what grows by itself from the seeds left by your previous harvest. You're not to gather the grapes of your untended vines. It's to be a year of complete rest for the land. But what the land produces during the year of Sabbath will be food for all of you. You, your servants, your maids, your employee, anyone living near you, your livestock and the wild animals on your land, everything the land produces may be used for food. You're to count seven 
Shabbat, seven Sabbaths of years, seven times seven years, that is 49 years, that on the tenth day of the seventh month on Yom Kippur, you're to sound a blast on the shofar. You're to sound the shofar all throughout your land, and you're to consecrate the 50th year, proclaiming freedom throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. It is a yovel, a jubilee for you. You will return everyone to the land he owns, and everyone is to return to his family. That 50th year will be a jubilee for you. In that year, you're not to sow, harvest, what grows by itself, or gather the grapes of untended vines, because it's a yovel. It will be holy for you. Whatever the fields produce will be food for all of you. And this year of Jubilee, every one of you is to return to the land he owns. If you sell anything to your neighbor or buy anything from him, neither of you is to exploit the other. Rather, you're to take into account the number of years after the Jubilee when you buy land from your neighbor. He's to sell to you according to the number of years of crops will be raised. If the number of years remaining is large, you'll raise the price. If they're few, you'll lower it. Because what he's really selling you is the number of crops to be produced. Thus, you're not to take advantage of each other, but you're to fear your God, for I'm Adonai, your God. Rather, you are to keep my regulations and rulings and act accordingly. If you do, you'll live securely in the land. The land will yield its produce. You'll eat until you have enough, and you will live there securely. Now, if you ask, if we aren't allowed to sow seed or harvest, harvest what our land produces, what are we going to eat the seventh year? Then I will order my blessing on you during the sixth year so that the land produces enough produce for all three years. The eighth year you'll sow seed but eat the old stored produce until the ninth year. That is, until the produce of the eighth year comes in, you will eat the old stored food. The land's not to be sold in perpetuity because the land belongs to me. You're only foreigners, temporary residents with me. Therefore, when you sell your property, you must include the right of redemption. That is, if one of you becomes poor, sells some of his property, his next of kin can come and buy back what his relative sold. If the seller has no one to redeem it, but becomes rich enough to redeem it himself, he will calculate the number of years the land was sold for, refund the excess to its buyer, and return to his property. If he hasn't sufficient means to get it back himself, then what he sold will remain in the hands of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee, the buyer will vacate it, and the seller will return to his property. Now, if someone sells a dwelling in a walled city, he has one year after the date of sale in which to redeem it. For a full year, he will have the right of redemption. But if he's not redeemed the dwelling in the walled city within the year, then title in perpetuity passes to the buyer throughout all his generations. It will not revert in the Jubilee. But houses in villages that are not surrounded by walls are to be dealt with like the fields in the countryside. They may be redeemed before the Jubilee and then revert in the Jubilee. Concerning the cities of the Levites and the houses in the cities they possess. Now the Levites are to have a permanent right 
of redemption. If someone purchases a house from one of the Levites, then the house he sold in the city where he owns property will still revert to him in the Jubilee. Because the houses in the cities of the Levites are in their tribe's possession among the people of Israel. The fields in the open land around their cities may not be sold, because that is their permanent possession. Now, if a member of your people has become poor, so that he can't support himself among you, you're to assist him, as you would a foreigner or a temporary resident, so that he can continue living with you. Do not charge him interest or otherwise profit from him, but fear your God, so that your brother can continue living with you. Don't take interest when you loan him money, or take a profit when you sell him food. I am Adonai, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt in order to give you the land of Canaan, and be your God. Now, if a member of your people has become poor among you and sells himself to you, do not make him do the work of a slave. Rather, you are to treat him like an employee, or a tenant, he will work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then he'll leave you, he and his children with him, and return to his own family and regain possession of his ancestral lands. For they are my slaves, whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. Therefore, they're not to be sold as slaves. Don't treat him harshly. Fear your God. Now, concerning the men and women you may have as slaves... You are to buy men and women slaves from the nations that surround you. You may also buy the children of foreigners living with you and members of their families born in your land. You may own these. You may also bequeath them to your children uh, to own. From these groups, you may take your slaves forever. But as far as your brothers, the people of Israel, are concerned, you're not to treat each other harshly. Now, if a foreigner living with you has grown rich, and a member of your people has become poor and sells himself to the foreigner living with you, or to a member of that foreigner's family, he may, re- he may be redeemed after he's been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him, or an uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or any near relative of his may redeem him, or if he becomes rich, he may redeem himself. He will calculate with the person who bought him Uh, the time uh, from the year he sold himself to the year of Jubilee and the amount to be paid will be according to the number of years and his time at an employee's wage. If many years remain according to them, will he refund the amount for his redemption from the amount he was bought for? If there remains only a few years until the year of Jubilee, then he will calculate with him According to his years, will he refund the amount for his redemption? He will be like a worker hired, year by year. You'll see to it that he's not treated harshly. If he has not been redeemed by any of these procedures, nevertheless, he will go free in the year of Jubilee. He and his children with him. For to me, the people of Israel are slaves. They're my slaves whom I bought out of the land of Egypt. I am Adonai, your God. Pretty complex, isn't it? Let's begin by trying to assess this from an overall standpoint. The focal points of Jubilee 
are restoration and mercy. In, in, in a supreme divine demonstration of God's grace towards his people. Of course, this involves parallel acts of restoration and mercy by his people. In other words, in the Jubilee year, God has made an ordinance that demonstrates his attributes of perfect and ideal justice, of fairness and equality and mercy and redemption. But, as are all of his laws, this law of Jubilee is not simply to float around in the ether as, as, as an ideal for us to contemplate and feel all warm and fuzzy about. Rather, this law is to be physically observed. It's to be manifested, lived out, carried out by his people for the benefit of his people. Now, truly, the law of Jubilee is one of the best examples of the foundation that undergirds every one of God's 613 laws. You shall love Yehovah your God with all your mind, soul, and strength, and you'll love your neighbor as yourself. One of the primary ways this restoration and mercy are carried out is by means of the regulations and ordinances concerning real property rights that are established here in Leviticus 25, both from the standpoint of what's best for a clan or a family collectively, that is, as a family unit, but still protecting an individual as well. Now, another primary purpose of these Jubilee laws was to assure that any reasonably diligent man who found himself or his family in poverty for any number of reasons could get a new start, a new lease on life from time to time. The opportunity for this new start came on the God-established year of Jubilee once every 50 years. Now, the usual reason a person in that era was in debt was due to poverty. And for the Hebrew, the usual reason many wound up in indentured servitude to another Hebrew was due to a debt that he couldn't repay. Those among us who have experienced this seemingly unbreakable cycle of borrowing, getting into debt, only to discover we can't pay the debt. So then we borrow more to pay the previous debts, only under even more onerous conditions, which we also can't repay. I mean, it's just a, just a bottomless pit. There seems to be no way out, and thus we live our lives under this crushing burden of debt and often eventually become bankrupt. In our American society, most debt is either in the form of what is called unsecured debt, like credit cards, or secured debt, usually our homes or our cars. If we default on our home mortgage, we lose our home. If we default on our car loan, it's repossessed. All debt in the Hebrew system was secured debt. Almost always the means of collateral was land, since it was an agricultural-based society. Lose the land, and you not only lose your home, you lose your food supply, 
You lose the ability to generate income in order to buy other things that you need. The other kind of security for debt in the Bible era was either yourself or a family member. Thus the concept of indebted servitude. And a human being became the collateral or the security for the loan. More correctly, it was the work, the labors a human could perform for you that was securing the loan. The year of Jubilee was partly designed to deal with this everyday reality for the people of Israel. Now we possibly have some folks in here who come from a farming background, so it's probably a little easier for them to understand the preeminent place the possession of land by a family holds in an agricultural society. Israel, throughout their history, was an agricultural society. So, we see the chapter open with the Lord speaking to Moses concerning the land he was giving, or better, had already given to them, the land of Canaan. Now, I've often used an analogy that as we learn Torah, it's organized in a way much like the maturing process of a human. We begin life learning general and rather simplistic rules and facts about a variety of topics and as we absorb those and as our minds are able more information is added and a finer point is put to each matter soon we see certain subtle connections and commonalities between what at first seemed to be totally separate issues and then the layers of the onion are peeled back even further to reveal deeper intricacies of the world around us Later in life, lots of things that we thought we knew everything there was to know about start to make sense on a deeper level. And we gain what the Bible calls wisdom as opposed to simply knowledge of a lot of facts. Now, we were introduced to the basics of God's laws in Exodus. Next, the initial parts of Leviticus gave us more information about those laws of Exodus so that Jehovah's intent behind each of these commands and laws would be better understood. Okay. Later in Leviticus, specific topics of which we've already been introduced are again addressed and nuances are put into certain God principles. Okay. As we get into Numbers and then Deuteronomy, we're going to get even more instruction that connects the dots in order to form a more perfect picture for those who have slogged their way through the first three books of Torah. Well, here in Leviticus 25, we're like students just about to enter our senior year in college. And now that we've established a solid base of knowledge, and terms have been defined, certain matters of special importance to God are going to be discussed in more detail. And one of those details is this. While it is true that God gave the land of Canaan to Abraham, it was not an outright transfer of ownership, like we might think of it. Rather, God has retained ownership of Canaan and instead given Abraham's seed, which is Israel, a long-term lease. A forever lease 
actually, although temporary eviction for breaking the terms of the lease was also part of the deal. And in verse 2 of our current chapter where it says, when you enter this land I am giving you, let's look at the Hebrew word used for giving. That word is natan. Yeah, Nathan, or like we might say in English, Nathan. Just like the name of the prophet that served King David. And the sense of the word is something like this. It means bestowed, given, added to you, apportioned to you, given as a gift, assigned to you, set apart for you. In other words, Nathan doesn't so much indicate a transfer of ownership as it does something being given to you to use as though it was yours. It's like being the President of the United States. You don't own the presidency. That belongs to the people. Rather, each president is simply holding the office for a time. This is why I make the analogy of the land being given to Abraham as a lease. It's not a sale. Jehovah retained ownership, but Israel got the use of it. Now, as an undergraduate student studying Torah, it's important that we understand this critical Bible principle of land tenure. That is, possessing something that is not necessarily yours to own. What Israel held in Joshua's day and holds today is not perpetual ownership of the land of Israel. They have a perpetual lease. In Hebrew, this key principle is called Ahuzah, Ahuzah, which means holding. And Yehovah tells Israel that since you do not own the land, Israel, you have, just have a leasehold, so you can't sell it. Because you don't own it. Any of us who have ever leased a building, like we do here, or ever leased a house, perfectly understand that. The owner would be very upset if you sold his house. We can use the property without interference from the owner as long as we honor the terms set forth in our contracts. But the one thing we can't ever do is sell the place. Yeah, or give it away. Good point. Or give it away. Now, further, one of the key terms of the leasehold agreement expressed in the covenants, by the way, of Abraham and Moses, that Jehovah has with Israel concerning that land they're going to possess, is that Israel is only to make the land itself work and produce six out of every seven years. Just as Jehovah worked for six days when he created our universe and then ceased on the seventh, so the Israelites must not ask the land to, uh, must ask the land to work only for six years and then allow it to cease working on the seventh. This Shabbat was not for the Israelites, per se, but for the land. It was so the land could rest. Okay, I told you we were going to kind of reread portions, so this is so long. So open your Bibles back up again. We're going to read the first, reread the first seven verses. Uh, 
Adonai spoke to Moshe on Mount Sinai and he said, tell the people of Israel, when you enter the land I'm giving you, the land itself is to observe a Shabbat rest for Adonai. Six years you'll sow your field. Six years you'll prune your grapevines and gather their produce. But in the seventh year is to be a Shabbat of complete rest for the land, a Shabbat for Adonai. You're neither to sow your field nor prune your grapevines. You're not to harvest what grows by itself from the seeds left by your previous harvest. You're not to gather the grapes of your untended vines. It's to be a year of complete rest for the land. But what the land produces during the year of Shabbat can be food for all of you, you, your servants, your maids, your employee, anyone living with uh, near you, your livestock, the wild animals on your land. Everything the land produces may be used for food. Here in Leviticus... Um, I'm sorry. I lost it. Okay. So, for six years... The Israelites can till the land. They can sow it. They can care for it. And they can harvest its produce. They're to prune the grapevines, partake of its sweet fruit, but in that seventh year, called the sabbatical year or the Shabbat year, Israel was to do nothing with the land. They couldn't sow new grain. They couldn't even prune their vineyards. Pruning was key for maintaining the health and productivity of their grapevines. In fact, there were two prunings per year. One in the summer, the other in the winter. Winter. None of that was to occur in that Sabbath year. Now, even though the 50-year jubilee cycle is the ultimate subject of Leviticus 25, first, a foundation for understanding it and connecting it with God's Sabbath pattern is established. Therefore, the concept of the Sabbath year is discussed first. Verses 5 through 7 are a bit difficult to understand because it seems to say on the one hand that during the seventh, seventh year Sabbath one must not harvest and eat what grows up naturally from the untended fields and then on the other it says you can harvest whatever the land produces by itself. We must seek out the ancient sages to give us good answers to this conundrum. And they tell us that these are two different situations. It was common for grain to have seeds fall off when it ripened. And then for those seeds to germinate on their own and produce new grain stalks. But it was also common to cut the grain stalks and then have them send up new shoots from the roots and therefore produce some more grain stalks. In the first instance, this was new grain because it came from seeds. In the second instance, this was old grain because it came from existing plants. This situation was so common and understood that names were given to this second growth and even a fairly usual third growth that could happen from the same plant's root system. The second growth was called in Hebrew Safiach. Safiach. And the third growth, Shachis. Shachis. The rule of of Leviticus 25 is that the sabbatical, that in the sabbatical year, one could not harvest and eat plants 
that sprung up from seeds that fell from the previous crop. But one could harvest and eat the second and third growths that shot up from the previous crop's root system that had been left in the ground. However, other than to go and gather the grain, the Israelites could do nothing more in the way of tending the fields. They were the way they were. You got what you got. That's it. Verse 7 again brings to the fore this principle that in the land of Israel, there are no second-class citizens. Okay. Whether foreigners staying among the Hebrews, slaves purchased by the Hebrews, or indentured servants, it didn't matter. All who lived as Israel shared and shared alike in whatever the land produced on its own in that sabbatical year. Now, one point we should be aware of. I said that the Shabbat year was for the benefit of the land, not the Hebrews. Now, while true, the other idea here was that in the sabbatical year, the Hebrews were now fully dependent on the Lord to provide for them. What was being demonstrated to the Israelites was that in the end, it was not their work that brought forth food from the ground. It was simply a gift from God. Okay. Israel was again almost as nomads during the seventh year, such as they were for those 40 years in the wilderness, fully dependent on the Lord for their sustenance. If God didn't provide, they didn't eat. So a great deal of faith was required on the part of the Hebrews as the sabbatical, each sabbatical year rolled around. And of course... Since God did provide, it would serve to build trust in him, just as the promised manna out in the wilderness, which had come down each day without fail, slowly but surely built faith in God for that first Exodus generation. Okay, let's reread a little bit more. Let's reread from uh, verses 8 through 13. You are to count seven Shabbats, seven Sabbaths of years, seven times seven years, that is, 49 years. And then on the tenth day of the seventh month, on Yom Kippur, you are to sound a blast on the shofar. You are to sound the shofar all throughout your land. And you are to consecrate the fiftieth year, proclaiming freedom throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. It will be a yovel, a jubilee for you. You will return Everyone to the land he owns, and everyone's to return to his own family. That fiftieth year will be a yovel for you. In that year you're not to sow, harvest what grows by itself, or gather the grapes of untended vines, because it is a jubilee. It will be holy for you. Whatever the fields produce will be food for all of you. In this year of jubilee, every one of you is to return to the land he owns. Okay. Verses 1 through 7 were reminders of the requirement for a seventh year complete rest for the land. Now that the Sabbath year principle is established, the so-called Jubilee is now ordered. A rather standard Bible term is used to explain the time frame for each Jubilee. It's to be seven Sabbaths of years, or 
Seven times seven, meaning 49. Then after that begins the Jubilee year, the 50th. Now the mark of the start of this special 50th year was Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, the 10th day of Tishri, which by the Hebrew religious event calendar is the 7th month of the religious year. Now this may seem a little bit odd, right? that we have the beginning of the 50th year being delayed by 10 days from what it would seem logical for it to start. The first day of Tishri is Rosh Hashanah, um, uh, by, by modern terminology, uh, Jewish New Year, yet because the actual Hebrew word for Jubilee is Yobel, okay, which means a ram's horn, by the way, and the ram's horn is associated with Yom Kippur, then the year of Jubilee begins on that tenth day of the month of Tishri, all right, which is Yom Kippur. And by the way, not all Jews agree with this, but that's the rationale behind it. And this 50th year jubilee is to also be a sabbatical year, just as each seventh year is to be a sabbatical year. Now watch as the prophetic meaning of the jubilee starts to unfold. The 50th year, of course, connects with the 50th day of Pentecost, Shavuot. The Lord told Israel that if they did not observe the 50th year Jubilee, that they would be exiled from their land and foreigners, Gentiles, would enjoy what the Lord had intended for his people, Israel. And of course, that happened on more than one occasion to Israel. This dovetails perfectly with Pentecost, the seven weeks of days plus one, 50 days. On the 50th day, the Holy Spirit descended not just for Jews, but for Gentiles. Okay. Foreigners who had never been part of Israel could suddenly know God's saving provision. God's provision would be for all who believed, including those who were not part of physical Israel. Those who did not observe the provisions of the 50-year Sabbath cycle, Jubilee, however, would be cut off from their land. Those who did not observe the provisions of Pentecost, acceptance of the Holy Spirit, who came on the 50th day, would be cut off from the kingdom of God. Now, the 50-year Jubilee brought with it a lot of challenges, as well as blessings. One would have to rest from all their work and count only on the provisions of God. Same with Pentecost. We're to lay down our own works and depend on the blood of Yeshua to provide. Okay. But the challenge was that on the 50-year Jubilee, those who were well off, those who had riches, those who owned land that was once owned by others, had to return it to the original owner. On Pentecost, we find that we must return all we have to the original owner, the Lord God. All that we have becomes his, and we become poor of spirit. We become spiritual paupers 
on that day. Let me point out something that may not yet have occurred to you. The way this plan for the Jubilee is laid out, there would have been two sabbatical years in a row every 50 years. The 49th year itself was a sabbatical year, the final year of each seven-year cycle. And then the 50th year that followed it was another Sabbath year. So we had two Sabbath years in a row. Now, there's been a lot of controversy about this. It's been suggested by rabbis and sages that the way the 50 years was meant to be counted was that the Jubilee year itself was to be counted as year one of each 50-year cycle. Therefore, the first year of the first seven-year period following Jubilee was actually the second year of the 50-year Jubilee cycle. By suggesting that formula, then the last year, then the, the, then the last year of the seven-year seven Jubilee cycle was the Jubilee. So you didn't have two years in a row. Okay. Why this suggestion? Because the sages just didn't see how it was possible for God to require the people to survive without planting and harvesting for two consecutive years resulting from two consecutive Sabbath years, the 49th followed by the 50th. However, the wording of the Torah is very plain and that idea is simply not supported. Okay. Indeed, there was to be two consecutive Sabbath years. Okay, just kind of tuck that away in your memory banks for a little while. Now let's turn our attention back to verse 10. There is this short statement that just kind of flies right by us. That in reality is the heart of the matter, the Jubilee. It says, you are to consecrate the 50th year proclaiming freedom throughout the land. And other versions, your version may say, proclaim liberty throughout the land. And a couple more might say proclaim release throughout the land. The word we want to look at is the one that is translated typically as freedom or liberty or release. And in Hebrew the word is deror. deror. Now this word deror is important because it's the nucleus of the entire purpose of Jubilee. Because it is declaring for us Exactly what the Jubilee is all about. Up until very recently, it's been generally agreed by Jewish and Christian scholars alike that freedom and liberty were pretty good translations for Deror. But with the current better understanding of what's called the Hebrew cognates, language cognates that are found in the Akkadian language, we've arrived at a much more precise meaning for that term. By way of reminder... Akkadian is now known to have been the precursor language to Biblical Hebrew. In other words, Biblical Hebrew grew out of the Akkadian language. And, and we have vast amounts of ancient records written in Akkadian that act kind of like a Rosetta Stone to help us translate Biblical Hebrew into modern day words. Now let me also remind you that though similar, Biblical Hebrew is not exactly the same as modern spoken Hebrew. Okay. So we have many Hebrew words in the Bible that are no longer in use in modern spoken Hebrew. 
We also have some Hebrew words whose use is so rare in the Bible that the meaning of the word is very fuzzy, very difficult to get an exact meaning for it. Deror is one of those words. But now, within the, just the last few years, the meaning is much more precise. And those translations that chose to use release were much closer to it. Juror comes from the Akkadian word anduraru, and it is a legal term. It usually is employed when a new king would come into power, and he would declare forgiveness of debts and the release of indentured servants from their masters. And a form of that word was also used that meant to move about freely. So freedom and liberty kind of missed the point. Juror more corresponds to the concept of release, specifically as being released from bondage and from debts. So far we have a picture of Jubilee then that is, first, the second sabbatical year in a row for the Israelites that happens two times a century, in which they're prohibited from sowing, planting, harvesting new grain, from tending their grapevines, or in any way maintaining their trees or fields. And that included their all-important olive trees. Jubilee, second, is to be a year of release, total release, from debts and from indentured servitude. And third, the only food that could be eaten, whether by animals or men, was that which was stored away in preparation for this difficult two-year span. Which, during that time, no new, food, no new food could be grown except what came up on its own. Now we get another phrase whose meaning comes into better focus as we understand the release aspect of the Jubilee year. Verse 13 ends with the words, Every one of you is to return to the land he owns. Or a better translation, which a lot of Bibles have is, the land of your possession. As long as we understand that possession does not mean ownership. It means holding. Like, like in a leasehold. Now I hope you're following this because these are really not trivial matters or unimportant details. They set the stage for so much of what we're going to be taught in the New Testament. The idea of every man returning to his land is that at some point the reason a man was not on the land he had owned at one time is that it had been sold to somebody else or had been forfeited to pay a debt. Most times that land was transferred from one person to another it was because of an unpaid debt. So let me be very clear. The Hebrew principle of Ahuzah was that nobody owned the land. They just held it for a time. God was the owner of all land, and even in the covenant with Abraham, it wasn't a transfer of ownership from Jehovah to Abraham. It was just the execution of a lease. And the term of that lease was forever. That same principle is, of course, moved on down the food chain, whereby a landowner doesn't really own the land, he just holds it, with the idea being that he holds it as long as the owner 
the true owner, allows him to hold it. And who's the owner? God. If the holder of the land uses the land as collateral on a debt, but can't pay the debt, then the land holding is transferred to the one who was holding the debt. But that person didn't own it. He just held it now. The obvious question comes then, just how long does that person who now holds the land get to hold it? The answer, until the Jubilee year arrives. Upon the year of Jubilee, a man who obtained a piece of land by foreclosure had to give it back to the original owner or if the original owner had died, the new owner had to give it back to the original owner's family or his clan. The original owner was not required to pay a dime to get it back. This was the arrangement of Jubilee. Now, verses 14 through 22 explain just a little bit further how this deal was to work. So let's read that again. Verses 14 through 22. If you sell anything to your neighbor or buy anything from him, neither of you is to exploit the other. Rather, you're to take into account the number of years until the Jubilee when you buy the land from your neighbor. And he's to sell you according to the number of years crops that will be raised. If the number of years remains large, you'll raise the price. If the number is few remaining, you'll lower it. Because what he's really selling you is the number of crops to be produced. Thus you're not to take advantage of each other, but you're to fear God, for I'm Adonai your God. Rather, you're to keep my regulations and rulings, act accordingly. If you do, you'll live securely in the land. The land will yield its produce, and you will eat until you have enough. And you'll live there securely. Now, if you ask, if we're not allowed to sow seed or harvest what our land produces, where are we going to eat the seventh year? Then I will order my blessing on you during the sixth year so that the land brings forth enough produce for all three years. The eighth year you will sow seed, but eat the old stored produce until the ninth year. That is, until the produce of the eighth year comes in, you'll eat the old stored food. Anybody have any idea why it said three years and not two? Exactly. In other words, you stopped planting once the fall arrived, all right, and you couldn't touch the land for two years. So you had to wait until that two years was up before you could prepare it even and then plant a crop and wait for it to happen. So you actually went closer to three years than two. Quite an ordeal. Okay, get the picture. The foundational principle that property ownership operates under in the system of law that God is giving to the Hebrews through Moses, is that the maximum amount of time anyone who holds land can lose it by any means to another person is 49 years. That's the longest they can lose their land. If that person or family has lost their land to another or sold it, so to speak, they get it back on the Jubilee year. Now, this is so vastly different 
All right, then the American system of property rights is it's pretty hard to comprehend. In America, property ownership is a sacred right. It's not just held, it's yours. It's yours as long as you want. However, if you have debt on it, like a mortgage and the debt holder forecloses and you can't quickly make good the debt, you lose that property forever. It now belongs to the new owner as long as he wants to keep it. You retain no rights. You have no further rights to that property. The new owner can sell it to somebody else. He can keep it. He can burn it down. He can will it to the next generation. Anything he wants to do. This is not the way the biblical system operated. I'm not condemning our system. I'm just trying to show you the differences. Okay. Therefore, under the system we're reading about here in the Torah, what a person paid to acquire a piece of land from someone was based on two things. First, how many years he would have possession of it until the next jubilee year arrived. And then was, of course, forced to return it. And second, what would be the value of those crops that would be grown on that land over that period of time? Now, just to be clear, if a person acquired a piece of land the very first year after a jubilee year, and he could hold it for that maximum possible amount of time, 49 years, until the next jubilee. Therefore, it would be calculated that he'd receive 49 years of crops off of it. Really only 42, though, because there would be seven sabbatical years in there. Okay? And each of those 49 years of crops, just speaking commonly, okay, let's say it was worth $100, then he would pay the former holder $4,900 for the right to hold that land. On the 50th year, the land automatically reverted to the former owner and stayed his until he got lost it again. Now, on the other hand, if several years had passed since the Jubilee year, and the next Jubilee year was due to arrive, say, in 14 years, and a person wanted to obtain that same plot of land, then calculating the value of each year's crops at that same $100, he'd pay only $1,400 for the land because he'd be giving it back a lot sooner and thereby gaining less use. For the poor and those in debt, Jubilee was a great thing. They really look forward to this. For the wealthy and the fortunate, it wasn't something they particularly welcomed. The Jubilee year for them was loss. Loss of a lot of their wealth. Both, but, but the thing is, both the rich and the poor shared in common during that two-year period. Fresh produce was still hard to come by. I don't care who owned the land, you couldn't tend it. The quality of food they ate was generally a lot poorer than what they were used to. But of course, as you can imagine, the wealthier solved this simply by purchasing food from foreign merchants who brought food grown from outside the land of Israel. Now, verse 18 represents a sudden interruption in this series of ordinances. Abruptly, God says this, You shall observe my laws and keep them faithfully that you may live upon the land in security. And this, then verse 19 continues the same thought with, 
The land will yield its fruit. You shall eat its fill. You shall live upon it in security. History proves the completely and astonishingly accurate playing out of this statement. During the days that Israel at least made an attempt to walk in the ways of Jehovah, the land was miraculously productive. During the days Israel was in the land, in the Bible era, it was the breadbasket of the Middle East. Its produce was renowned for its quality and quantity. Babylonian, Persian, later Roman records show how much the conquerors desired to have the benefit of the fabulous fruits and grains and vegetables and wine that was grown in the Holy Lands. Yet every time the Israelites were exiled, the land stopped producing. When the Assyrians emptied the northern kingdom of Ephraim, Israel, and replaced them with foreigners, immediately the land went into distress. Nearly two centuries after that, we read of the Jews returning from their captivity in Babylon to ruined fields, untended vineyards, a destroyed Jerusalem. Over the centuries, after the destruction of the temple by the Romans in 70 AD and the expulsion of the bulk of the Jewish people, the land began a steady decline that corresponded with greater foreign presence and control and lesser Hebrew presence and control. Eventually, Israel became, Israel became a very lightly populated place because the land had become waste. History books are full of descriptions of visitors to the Holy Lands in the 18th, 19th, and early 20th centuries, where after traveling the land from one end to the other, they were shocked that anybody could even survive in the place. During an 1867 visit to Palestine, Mark Twain, yes, that Mark Twain, observed, of all the lands there are, for dismal scenery, Palestine must be the prince. The hills are barren and dull, the valleys unsightly deserts inhabited by swarms of beggars with ghastly sores and malformations. Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes. To this he added that the Holy Lands were now, in his words, a desolate country whose soil is rich enough but given over totally to weeds. A silent, mournful expanse. A desolation is here that not even imagination can grace with the pomp of life and action. We reached Tabor safely. We never saw a human being on the whole route. There was hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Even the olive and the cactus those fast friends of a worthless soil had almost deserted the country. George Adam Smith, a geographer who visited Palestine in 1830, before the changes made by many European immigrants coming there, described the country as a mixture of barren, treeless land and malarial, weed-grown swamps. He says, Jews who bought this worthless land were called and known as the children of death because many of them just did not survive. When Israel is not in the land, 
the land responds by going fallow. We'll continue this next week.